This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to examine what's possible for Walt Harris on Saturday's fight, given what he's been through. We're going to talk to UFC fighters Brian Kelleher and Drew Dober, who had big wins from Wednesday's card. And we're going to talk about the UFC's future, looking forward to both the summer and the fall, maybe even the winter as well. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation, channel 156 at 1 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget about our mailbag, Show at gmail.com. We were talking about this. Now, if you didn't know anything and you just said, you know, what, I want to make some bets this weekend. I'm not much of a gambler. Maybe you all are. But, you know, you want these people who just there's a lot of people who don't even watch sports who just like to gamble because that's the way they like to spend their time. And, hey, I'm not judging you for it. Like, do what you want in this world. It's short life. Make the most of it while you're here, I suppose, right? In any event, though, if you were one of those guys and you went to Best Fight Odds, which is, again, there's no plug here. I'm not paid by them. I don't get anything from them. I just find it to be a helpful resource, sort of like a Wikipedia, for betting odds. And you went there and you looked at the information. You said, wow, Walt Harris is a minus 137. He is favored to beat Alistair Overeem. I wonder why that might be. And then you go and you look at it and you're like, okay, let's you know reach and tail the tape and all that stuff. And that really wouldn't tell you what it is, right? None of that would be the information that would really tell you what's happening here. Here is what is happening in this fight between Overeem and Walt Harris. It is one of the more unusual sports circumstances you will ever see. They happen, but they are rare. And here's what I mean. When an athlete is required to compete following the death and sometimes the traumatic death of a loved one. I made this point earlier in the week. If you were uh, uh, an athlete, uh, you, you were a cyclist, you were a fighter, you were a boxer, you were a swimmer, whatever you were, and someone asked you, talk to me about what the conditions would be for an optimum training environment leading into a big competition they would arrange for you a series of things, you know, great sleep, proper diet, no interruption, you know, the right kind of coach, no injuries, blah, 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 whatever they would list for you. No one would put on there, oh, um, traumatic death of a loved one to get there. It wouldn't even occur to them to put that there. And to be clear, and this is where Walt Harris is going to have, you know, some kind of, I would imagine, some difficult moments. First of all, he has to fight a guy who has nearly 70 fights to his career, I think more than that even. And then on top of that, there's another problem, which is, of course, Walt Harris is entering this fight after his stepdaughter. But, you know, it sounds to me like he had a relationship with her. I had a stepfather for a while and, um, you know, we, we were tight when my, mo- when my mom at the time was married to him. So, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to know what all people's relationship would like, uh, is like with their step uh, parents, but I had a very positive one, right? In any event... He seemed to have a really profound connection to her. And as you guys know, all the, the, the whole story, she was abducted in broad daylight and uh, brutally murdered. And there was a manhunt for her, and they had held out hope the family had. And ultimately, it, it, it didn't, um, you know, when the results came in, they came in, and it was not great, right? So we talked about this yesterday. If you've ever lost a loved one, number one, that is painful by itself. Number two... The method in which they left this world, I know you don't want to talk about it and you don't want to think about that, but the way in which they were taken from Earth 
to me, will make a big impact on you? Did they, was it an elderly person who had a great life and then passed away in their sleep that will probably bring you a degree of comfort? Um, you know, what were the circumstances of their death significantly worse than that? And to the point where your mind is wondering what were their last moments like? I, you know, I don't want to speculate beyond simply asking that, that question rhetorically, but I would imagine that they've probably gone through that and it, it is, I can only imagine for that family torture. Absolute Guantanamo Bay torture. No doubt in my mind. So they have had to deal with not only the trauma of the absence of this person, they have had to deal with the trauma of the way in which they were taken. She was taken from them, her community, and the world in general. And that has to be extraordinarily difficult. Yet at the same time, here is the weird reality that we all just have to kind of face. I don't know what happens on Saturday in the fight. Overeem is not going to lay down for him, and Overeem is a very, very tough customer. At the same time, I feel like Walt Harris was turning a corner. He is a big puncher. He's pretty athletic. But more to the point, you look at the circumstance where Brett Favre lost his father and then chucked for a million touchdowns subsequently, or when Isaiah Thomas was playing for the Celtics before his injury woes derailed his career, and his sister died in a uh, car accident, and he hung a gazillion points on him. Right? These guys were able to take that trauma, harness it for something, and deliver not merely memorable sports performances, frankly, kind of historic ones. I don't want to tell you, oh, look at the bright side. Walt is going to channel all that pain and turn it into something. But I cannot ignore that as a possibility either. If he loses tomorrow because the way in which his life was interrupted no one would ever fault him for it. No one would ever think twice. In fact, the fact that he's even coming back tomorrow and trying itself is its own feat of greatness, to be quite candid with you. If you've ever lost a loved one, especially one where perhaps they left the world in traumatic circumstances, dude, the pain does not leave you. It does not go away, ever. You might learn to get coping mechanisms and skills and strengths to deal with the pain, but the pain remains the same. And especially where we're talking, you know, it's not even been uh, a year. It's been only just a few months, really. That is very fresh as a wound. So if the A, just that he's trying tomorrow is remarkable. Just, I mean, utterly remarkable. The fact that he is favored to win and that you can't call that crazy is, is in its own way kind of crazy. And if he actually goes out there and does it, you know, it's one of these weird contradictions of life where in these brief moments, you know, they couldn't do it over time, but in these brief moments, athletes, extraordinary athletes can sometimes take a moment of absolute horror and that's what that is, horror, and converted into something that I wouldn't call quite beautiful, but a poignant moment, let's say. A moment of a port in the storm, a brief respite from the uh, anguish, and maybe even a moment of celebration, right? A moment to celebrate 
the strength that comes with harnessing all that pain, actually, and how it reflects upon the relationship that you might have had with a loved one. To stand up, to fight through it, to overcome, to be washed in that glory, however fleeting. That's a real thing, man. That's a real thing. It does happen. So I'm not trying to talk you into the idea that, hey, Walt is going to go in there and he's going to channel his, uh, you know, his uh, deceased loved one and it's going to turn him into the next Fedor. It certainly could. I already commend him for making the effort, to be quite candid with you. But I, I will tell you, you know, if, if he does that, he belongs, Walt Harris, if he does that, he belongs alongside the Favs and the Thomases and other athletes who have done something like that. Um, and if he doesn't, hey, who, who could have honestly expected more? It's just that you can't rule out the remarkable when you deal with remarkable people and remarkable circumstances. And Walt Harris is one of those kinds of people. This week on World of Basketball, former American college stars Jimmy and Billy Barron joined the show, and Billy spoke about the famous, heated Red Star Partisan rivalry. Let's say Partisan has the home court. We'll have to drive to a separate parking lot on the other side of the city. The team will meet there, and then we'll all board the bus with, let's say, four police cars ushering us to the gym. The place is already half full, and it's an hour and a half before the game. I mean, I looked at Marcus Page, who was on Partisan, and I said, "What's this? how does this compare to Duke? Carolina. He was like, can't because this is nowhere near Duke Carolina. Carolina is like, this is so much crazier. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on Pandora and every Monday on the Sirius XM app. Joining us now on the hotline is a man, boy, took a fight on short notice, up a weight class, and then won via leaping left hook. Isn't that great? Unbelievable job he did. It is boom, the one and only Brian Kelleher. Hi, Brian. How are you, sir? Boom. What's up, Luke? How's everything, man? Good, buddy. Well, first of all, congratulations, man. How are you feeling? That's got to be, I'm not saying that's your best win because I don't think that's true, but that's a great win you had on Wednesday. Yeah, man, for sure. I feel, I feel amazing. That was my first real like clean knockout in the UFC. So that was great to experience that. And, you know, just with all the circumstances, with the short notice and uh, and the quarantine situation and all that, it just made it all the better. All right, let's talk about the uh, situation. How did the fight come to play? Walk me through your day. You get a call to fight this guy how long ago? So, actually, I, uh, I got the call to fight him about two weeks out. Uh, what happened was I knew he was supposed to fight someone January 18th, and it fell through. And then they were trying to rebook him, and uh, I knew right then and there, if I'm going to get a fight, I'm going to try to pick a fight. So I kind of targeted him like, hey, I'm willing to fight this guy. Let me uh, shoot him. I actually shot him a DM on Instagram and was like, hey, man, I'm down to fight, but I I, I can only fight at 145. You know, I can't make 135 during these times right now, but let me know if you're down at 145. So he agrees to the fight, and uh, he's telling me, you know, I'll tell my manager. I'm like, I'll tell my manager, and we kind of got the fight done together, which was cool. That is a hilarious. So then y'all's managers went to the UFC, said, hey, we got to fight. Did they, did they protest at all? They were like, cool, great, let's do it. No, yeah, both of our managers kind of pushed it, and uh, it seemed like they were interested. You know, they were just trying to book fights, as many uh, people who were interested to fight during these times. So uh, it took a little bit of time after the initial message, but uh, then my manager gets back to me, uh, I'd say, like, maybe a week after that, and, and, and they're like, hey, 
they're all about the Hunter Azura fight at 145. Are you in? I'm like, yeah, 100%. Like, I'm definitely going to fight when I can, you know, not have to deal with that grueling weight cut and, uh, you know, have to go through all that leading up during these times. So it was perfect. What's your walk-around weight? Well, I went into the cage uh, fight night at about 161. Um, and, you know, that's typically heavy for me. You know, I, during the quarantine, I was doing a lot of workouts at home, a lot of running, and honestly doing everything I can to stay in shape. But my body was adapting to the circumstances, and it was putting on weight just naturally. I was lifting more weight. I wasn't having the same quality training sessions. And I wasn't really eating that bad, to be honest. It was just the way my body reacted. So I got up to about 164 during those times, and that's why I said, hey, I'll fight, but only at 164. 45. Uh, typically, I'm like 155 in, in like training camp four weeks out from a fight. So let me ask you, there's a lot of, I mean, here's what I've noticed from a lot of fighters. A lot of fighters said, if we could go back to having all the training facilities that we needed tomorrow, they would obviously prefer it. But the quarantine in many ways has forced fighters to reevaluate, let's say, priority in training. What really matters the most? What's the most effective way to do it? What has the quarantine done to your training? Yes, it's limited it. I get that. But has it reinvented it in any kind of way? Because here's what I'm wondering. You fought up a weight class. Dude, you look smooth. It looked like you were not rusty at all. Yeah, it's kind of, it, I surprised myself, kind of like how Gaethje said in his fight. Like I felt the same way after I watched my fight because I'll be honest with you, man. Like After I got the fight, I had, you know, two weeks out, I had two weeks crunch time to start breaking rules and start training and, and seeing if I can get in the gym. So that's what I did. And I sparred twice, right? For this fight, I sparred Marab Davalashvili. Obviously he's an animal. Everyone knows that I sparred with him twice and I gassed out terribly the first time. And uh third round, I was literally just like on the ground. Like I can't get up. Like I'm gassed. And I had to get through that adversity and tell myself, no, like, you're good to fight. You've been through this. Just focus on the fight. Don't worry about the sparring. That's sparring. Leave it there and just go into the cage. So for me, you know, the quarantine made me really appreciate training, though, being able to train with a new partner and being able to get that sparring. And, like, I was really excited to do it. And sometimes you get burnt out. You don't really want to be there sometimes, just like anyone else at work. But for me, I was like, man, I'm, like, so excited that I could actually train normal and be able to fight and be able to do my job during this, this pandemic. Hmm. Brian Kelleher joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. All right, Brian, walk me through the fight. Um, what were you expecting? What was there, was there any kind of real game plan or, you know, given the short notice, you're just trying to feel it all out. Um, there was like some little tendencies that we knew of. I'm not like a huge detailed game planner, but, uh, you know, one thing we knew was that Hunter likes to throw, you know, blind kicks. He likes to throw one-off kicks. He doesn't really set him up with a long combination. He kind of just throws it. So for me, I was trying to meet fire with fire and kind of stay in the pocket and look for a counter and look to uh, kind of uh, block his shots and exchange right after to try to catch him on the way out. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. You know, he threw that inside leg kick. I kind of faded off, dipped to the left, and I just saw that left hook open there. He kind of drops his hands on kicks. We knew that, so we took full advantage of it. Yeah, you certainly did. Let's talk about that left hook at the end. Man, that thing was such a piece of work. So what was the idea there? You were lowering your level, so he thinks you're going to the body, and then you leap up top and catch him with the left hook. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, exactly. You know, it's one of those things. That I, I'm just I'm good with improvisation, getting creative in there, and just kind of react reacting. I don't really you know plan in there. There's no time to really think. You know, I just do. But the the methodology behind it is exactly what you said. Like dip to the left, kind of lower my level a little bit, get him thinking and guessing that I'm going low, and then I come up and around high. And man, it just it landed in the perfect spot, and I knew right there, like this guy's done. Uh, when you landed it, people always tell me when you land a knockout blow, it just, you can barely feel it. Is that right? 100%. Yeah. Like, I didn't really feel the impact on my fist. You almost know because it's so, like, crisp and clean. You're like, oh, man, like, that's the one right there. Like, this guy's done. Bro, how mad are you the ref denied you the walk-off KO? Because he fell, and you put your arms up, and then the ref kind of looked at you like, you know, finish him off, so you, you gave him a couple hammer fists, and that was that. But you almost had that Mark Hunt moment. I know. I was pissed off, man, looking back at the fight. I'm like, no, it would have been so much cooler if I put my hands out and just turned around and walked away, you know? And uh, I really didn't want to inflict more damage. I looked into the kid's eyes, and I was like, man, the kid, you know, he's out. Like, he's definitely out. But, you know, he put, the ref pulled up beside me and kind of stopped. And I was like, all right, like, I guess I got to proceed and finish up with some hammer fists. And uh, then I really, uh, you know, put the nail in the coffin. So it would have it been cool for two things, to get the walk-off and for fans to be there for a knockout like that for sure. Uh, Brian Kelleher joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. Brian, how'd you feel about everything related to it? I mean, crazy camp, up a weight class, there's a COVID pandemic, the hotel stuff, all the safety concerns, you have to fly down there. What would you, like, uh, give me a sense of overall about how unusual this experience has been for you. It was definitely different, especially with the no fans and everything, and then like showing up to the arena and getting tested and all that stuff. Uh, you know, the UFC did a great job with as much as they could with the protocol to be safe and everything. Um, you know, really just the quietness in the arena was different, but I embraced it all, and I felt really good about it. You know, I, I always tell myself, you know, because there's always thoughts that come in and there's worries and, and anxiety and stuff like that before fights, but I always tell myself, like, just, you know, enjoy this process and stay calm and have fun with it because that's when I do my best. So I carry that, that attitude with me all the way to the cage, and uh, it really showed in there because, you know, I could have let all these thoughts get to me. This is different. There's no fans. I, I guessed out in sparring just, just a week ago. What's going to happen? I'm afraid to get tired in there. Like, all these things could have carried over with me, but I, I deny those thoughts, you know, and I go into there with a, a focused, positive mindset. Uh, the the fifty k extra, you gonna put that in savings or are you gonna even have it? Maybe maybe just a little bit of fun with it. <laughs> I, you know what? Me and my manager were talking. Like I'm gonna, I'm, I'm definitely trying to buy a house. That's that's for sure. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm set up pretty good to do that now. But also, I, I should have, you know, some money to do some investing on the side as well. Um, you know, so we're we're gonna be smart with this one. You know, my first couple of bonuses, like I bought myself a car. That's all paid off. Uh, you know, I bought some some uh, some gold chains, which uh, you know I got that out of the way. I think I'm done with that. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do any more stupid purchases, but uh, yeah, we got to be smart with this money now. Uh, by the way, I don't know what the situation is like in Long Island, but you know, state to state, this whole thing is different in terms of reopening and whatnot. But uh, they're not; they haven't reopened golf courses in Long Island, have they? No, and I'm kind of upset about that. I'm, like, waiting for them to open up. You know what they are? They have them open only walking, though, so you have to kind of walk the course, and I'm not about that life. Uh, <laughs> I, I get my cardio in, uh, in my training, so 
I, I need those carts to be rolling around, you know? Bro, you are so lazy. You really won't even just walk the course? Oh, my God. It's hilarious. I'm so lazy, and I'm honestly just, like, can I curse on here or no? Yes, yes. I, I, I'm, like, the biggest pussy outside of fighting. Like, I'll be honest with you, man. That COVID test had me shook. Like, I was shook for that more than my fight. And, like, I'm just, like, I'm, like, you know, I'm scared of little things that happen, but I can fight someone in a cage, no problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, with that, that swab, dude, they drive that thing into the back of your brain. What was that like? That's the thing. I made it out to be so much worse than it was. I was, like, I was nervous for that. I was, like, talking to people about it, asking everyone, hey, how was the nose swab? How was the nose swab? They're, like, ah, you know, it wasn't too far. And then I would ask the next person, and they'd be, like, ah, it's not as bad as you think. So I was, like, oh, shit, like, I don't know what to think about this. Let's, let's just go into this. Tell the lady to be gentle, see what happens. So for me, personally, it wasn't bad at all. Like, it was the littlest tickle, and, you know, it took a little long but it wasn't too bad. But then my cornerman got it, and he was like, I did not like that at all. So I guess everyone, it felt different. Mm, it's like a tattoo, right? You go to one person, and they got a real soft hand. You go to the next artist, and they just grind that, that needle into you. Maybe, maybe it's just all about that. Yeah, exactly. It's like different pain thresholds and how you deal with things. Like for me, like, it was like, I was like so pleasantly surprised. I'm like, oh, this is nothing. That was easy. All right, well, here's the, here's the situation for you. Like, what are you going to do for training going forward? You know, obviously New York State is under a significantly greater um, lockdown scenario than some other places. So if the UFC calls you in a month and for, for, let's say, a fight four weeks away, so let's say two months from today, could, could you do it? Like, what, would, like what, is your, what is your plan for 2020 at this point? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, my, my plan before any of this all happened, you know, coming off the win in January was, like, let's get four big wins in this year. Let's stay active. You know, I'm 33. Time is not necessarily on my side, although I feel great. I feel in my prime. I feel like I'm getting better still, you know. So I don't know if that's true, but, you know, I'm not the youngest guy in the, in the division, so I'm trying to move a little faster. Uh, I have the experience. I'd like to fight two more times this year. Uh, unfortunately, I have... Uh, like a 30-day suspension because I had stitches in, like, two of my toes. Actually, the webbing in my toes, like, split open, and there was, like, deep holes, and I have no idea. I guess from the front snap kick, I must have hit his elbow. So I had to get stitches, so I honestly can't really train until this heals up. Uh, I'm hoping to get back in there, I'd say, late July, the earliest, maybe early August. You got stitching in the webbing of your toe i've never even heard of something like that is that painful oh dude the doctor was like what is this like i've never seen this this is the weirdest spot and like to, for him to stitch that area it was like very awkward for him it was it's kind of a really weird spot in there you know to get in there in between these toes uh, and it actually happened to two toes one of them in the web in the middle and then one of them had a big slit on the back of the toe and uh, it was pretty deep, and he had to stitch that up as well. It was like the weirdest thing. I didn't feel it in the fight. I just saw it after. Yeah, well, you know what? I guess it's a small price to pay for how great everything went for you. Uh, congratulations, Brian. You represented the MMA beat well. We were very proud of you. Um, just a sensational moment for you, so I'm very thrilled. And uh, listen, heal the webbing in your toes. And uh, Oh, by the way, you're going back to 135, though, right? I mean, this was just a, this was just a temporary thing. 
Yeah, this was a uh, quarantine weight, you know. I'm going back to 35. I mean, I, I'll be honest. Like, I, I felt so good in there, man, that I'm like, man, like, is this the move? Like, I, I don't really think I could fight these featherweights. I'm not the biggest bantamweight, but, like, it would be nice if gyms stay closed, if the UFC is, uh, stays lenient like this and kind of lets me fight other bantamweights at 145 until things open up, you know? Oh, yeah, before we let you go, I, I almost forgot. The O'Malley called out, call out. So let me guess. He's, he's real popular, but is there anything beyond his popularity that made you want to call him out? Well, no, I mean, I, it's that, but also, you know, I think, I think he underestimates me. I know he's had some things to say about me, uh, you know, in, in regards to like beating me would mean nothing because I'm, I'm, I'm not that good and I'm nobody and he wants a name guy, but he says that, but the, he, he's obviously protected, you know, and I know that they're trying to move him along slowly and they're trying to give him favorable matchups. And I'm telling them like, listen, like, Go ahead, let him underestimate me. I know I'm an older guy that's taken some losses, but my mindset is fresh right now. I'm uh, uh, I'm in like a really good mental state, and I'm ready to take a guy like that out and steal all that hype. All right, well, I hope you get your opportunity. Really appreciate your time, Brian. Congratulations. Heal up and uh, invest that money wisely. We appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it, man. There he is, Brian Kelleher. What a win for that guy. Anthony Smith on MMA Tonight. Is this now the moment where everyone's looking at Justin Gaethje as maybe the best lightweight on planet Earth? Justin Gaethje is fundamentally better than Tony Ferguson, so I'm not sure if they ran that back, if it would look much different. Maybe that was the Gaethje effect. Like, maybe it's not Tony. Maybe he didn't have an off night, and Justin Gaethje's just good at making people look bad. At this point, there's a strong argument to be made that Justin may be the best 155-pounder on the planet. Tuesday through Thursday, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern on Serious XM Fight Nation. This young man, what a win on Wednesday night. Uh, this was the most intriguing fight on the card, certainly outside of the main event. And when he took on Alexander Hernandez and beat him with inside of two rounds. How about that? And got a performance of the night bonus along the way. I think this might be the first time we even had him on the show. What are we waiting for? Well, well you know, better late than never, I suppose. Uh, joining us now on the hotline is the one and only Drew Dober. Hi, Drew. How are you? What's up, guys? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Finally. Yeah, sorry, dude. You know what, man? I've been uh, I've been slacking. I don't have an excuse other than to say I've been slacking, but better late than never, right? Right, right, right. Uh, all right, man. Well, first of all, congratulations. What a performance by you. That was I, – I had – when you had knocked out Nasrak Hakparast, I was like, okay, he did that so clinically. It caught my attention. And then when they made this matchup, I thought to myself, this is, this is a real test – for both of these guys, and you answered it with flying colors. How happy are you with your performance? What kind of grade would you give? Oh, I mean, let's see if I could give. I'm a perfectionist, and so I'd give myself like a, like a seven or an eight. <laughs> you know, I, I look back at it, and I'm just like, uh, oh man, there's a lot of a uh, lot of mistakes I was making, and a lot of this and that. But um, as far as satisfaction goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm thoroughly satisfied. I think uh, just being that, that featured bout on like one of the only broadcasted sporting events on ESPN, uh, just it, it's super fun and exciting to be a part of that. You, you, you're a perfectionist, so let's go through this here a little bit. Uh, in terms of what went right from the game plan, so it was what you guys had strategized and then what you executed, what went right? 
So what we're right was, uh, I mean, the the theme for the entire camp was patience. Um, you know, I, I kind of get, uh, I hate being a boring fighter. I love entertainment. I love like slugging it out and, uh, you know, having these great, uh, you know, fights. So I get a little impatient and I take a little bit more risks than I should. So in this fight, you know, against a very, you know, uh, talented uh, an opponent that has a number in front of his name, I had to really practice on that, that patience and take advantage of moments instead of trying to force it to happen. Now, in terms of the opposite, a couple of things that could have gone a little bit better, what would you say? Well, he scored three out of his five takedowns. So statistically, uh, uh, I don't like that number. I want to try to you know get my takedown defense a little higher than that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you just look over at, like, all right, these are the mistakes that I made, and uh, this is how I'll fix it moving forward. All right, so let's talk about what I think is the big story here. There's a couple of things. One is just your maturation as a talent, man. I mean, you're, you're still young, right? You're 31 years old. You turned 31 in October. You know, when you were out there fighting early in your career against the Varners and the Hines and the Escuderos, it was a bit up and down for you, and now it feels like things are much, much Everything just looks smoother and more composed. How would you describe your technical maturation? Um, I think, uh, you know, internally, I, I felt like I had the factor, uh, athletic, driven, uh, motivated, and all that stuff. Um, I think, I, you know, honestly, I held on to that hometown gym for a little too long. And, um, you know, when I got signed by the UFC, I took that in like a two-weeks notice, up a weight class, training out of like Omaha, Nebraska. I didn't really have training partners. Blue was just hitting a heavy bag, you know, preparing for fights. Um, and so, like, I was just doing it all by myself as far as nutrition, management, fighting, coaching, all that stuff. So when I finally moved out to Denver, Colorado, and got with Team Elevation, you know, I finally had the help that I needed. Um, and I, you know, I'm taking full advantage of the, this help, and uh, it's really escalated my, my, my entire game to a point where, like, now we can see the uh, fruition of it. When, what was the first fight you had with a full camp at uh, Elevation Fight Team? Um, I thought it'd be Jamie Varner, I think would be the first camp that I really had, you know, with full help of team elevation. Um, uh, before that I fought Nick Hine, but like, I just moved out to Denver and, uh, you know, honestly, I had my roommate corner me in, in Berlin, Germany, you know, I was kind of still just kind of doing things by myself, but, uh, yeah, after that fight and I was scheduled to fight Jamie Varner, I was like, Holy cow, I'm fighting a uh, previous world champion from the WC. Like I need to really get things together. So I, uh, you know, hired on the coaches and, you know, really took advantage of team elevation after that. Drew Dober joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. Let's talk about some of the specifics from the fight. One of the bigger adjustments that I seem to notice, or maybe I didn't, correct me if I'm wrong, from the first to the second round was you crowded him a lot more in the second round, and he really had no idea what to do with it except lateral movement, and then you were catching him with that as well. What were you trying to do from the first to the second round that made such a difference? Um, so if we're going to talk about a mentality of fighting, um, I viewed Alexander as a very egotistical type of fighter. Guys are like running their mouths and, uh, they, they're really trying to build themselves up. Now, the only thing with fighting is if they need to build themselves up you know, to themselves before the fight, you know, they're going to have a hard time carrying themselves throughout the fight. So I've fought in egotistical fighters before and yeah, they're great in the first round. But if I can maintain that pressure, make their life uncomfortable, they're going to start looking for a way out. And that's kind of what happened with Alex, where he came out great, fantastic, got his, you know, stuff, you know, he was trying to do. But, you know, in the second round, like things weren't working out for him. Um, you can just slowly see him just, you know, second guessing things. 
See, I never know what to make of guys who run their mouth. I mean, is that universally true that if they're big talkers, they're like, can't you also be a big talker and then also have like great cardio and last? Or is it like you really believe there's something to the idea that these guys are missing something. And so this act they put on is designed to help them persevere. You know, uh, you know, I, I feel like it's not a, all across the board. I think when Connor runs his mouth, he truly feels it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but majority of the time when it comes to like the bars or the regional circuit or even like low tier UFC fighters, you know, the guys that want to run their mouth and tell you how awesome they are, they're honestly just telling themselves how awesome they are. And so when they try to create this fight in their head, um, it is trying to relieve the anxiety of what's about to happen. And, uh, you know, and so anytime that someone runs their mouth to me, I'm just like, you know, you're set, you're talking to yourself because all I'm hearing is a whole lot of anxiety. So how do you balance making sure that you're giving yourself positive reinforcement, but also taking the challenge and the threat seriously? What, what kind of internal dialogue do you have? Um, you know, I, I, I have a very high opinion of myself. You know, it's, it's not a simple answer as far as like, how do you maintain confidence? Um, I practice confidence, confidence every single day. And the way I do that is I follow the plan I set for myself every single day. I'm putting you know effort into my, my training and this and that and this and that. But when it comes to like fight week, fight day, no, the hay's already in the barn. Like, uh, you know, we've already put in the work. So whatever happens, happens. And I just, I, I, I ignore the outcome uh, thought process. I just take every moment and enjoy every single moment. And so, like, the weigh-ins is just weigh-ins. You know, uh, the the warm up is just the warm up. The walkout is just the walkout. And then once I'm in the cage, I just take any mo- every moment at a time. And so I'm not even thinking about the third round. I'm not even thinking about the the, the end of the fight. So I, I just don't need to try to create this confidence for the future when I'm not even thinking about it. Did you feel the symbolic weight of this fight? And here's what I mean: Hernandez obviously had a stumble prior to this bout against Cerrone, but he had that huge win over Darius. You could call it lucky, but he got it. He had the big win over Aubin Marcier, and certainly you were surging, but he, those are two guys who, uh, who had defeated you previously, and here you were, new guy, here's him kind of reeling. I mean, he had the Massarenduba fight, but that was real controversial, right? So there was this moment where it was like, is this one guy going to pass the other, even though the other guy maybe has beaten some other ones that the other guy hadn't? Did you feel the weight of this uh, in terms of the narrative? So I wouldn't consider it weight. But uh, if I'm going to be completely honest, Alexander Hernandez has a win over the two, the last two guys who beat me, you know? And so what, to me, this fight, uh, like, symbolized was the evolution of Drew Dober. Like, I'm no longer the guy that was, you know, fighting Oliver, you know, Benio. I'm a, I'm a far better fighter than that. And so when I'm competing against Alex, this is my chance to show the world that, like, yeah, you can keep looking at my past fights because that's no longer the person that's entering the cage. And so, you know, with the win against Alexander, I, I feel like I've avenged those losses. Drew Dober joins us here on the Luke Thomas Show. So, Drew, let's talk about your training because we're in a quarantine situation. Everyone is different. We had Brian Kelleher on the show. He's in New York uh, State in Long Island. So, you know, you can imagine the lockdown there is a little bit more serious than it might be in other places. What were you able to do relative to other camps to get ready for this particular contest? 
Um, man, it, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for everybody, you know, fighters, non-fighters with this entire situation. But um, I just adjusted my mindset to where, you know, we can't fall back to a routine. There is no routine. Gyms are closed. What not? So every single day I set a plan for myself. Um, and so like, I just had to make the phone calls, you know, I had to find two teammates, I had to find a coach, I had to find a mat space or an outside or a park. You know, I, ha- I have these goals and I have these plans I need to put together. And I just treated every day, you know, uh, of its own, you know, what am I doing Monday? What am I doing Tuesday? Right. And so it was just, I was just rolling with the punches, you know, trying to, you know, follow the action plan every single day. And, um, you know, and the benefit was actually was the training sessions were maybe like 45 minutes to an hour. So not the, like the super long ones, but I got quality work. I had the coach's eyes specifically on me. I had these teammates sacrificing their time to really help me with the things that I need. And so, you know, the training sessions may have been limited, but I got a, a far better quality out of it. Huh, that's interesting. It, looking back on your career, do you have like various turning point moments? Do you have moments where you look back and you say, I leveled up here? Because it feels like the Hernandez fight was a real level up moments. Were there some other ones previously? Um, yes, yes. Uh, you know, I think every single fight, there's a level up moment. Um, you know, I was just thinking today, you know, that the quote was, you know, don't let uh, a win go to your head and don't let a loss get to your heart. Right. Um, so the losses, you have to self-evaluate and figure out, man, what am I doing wrong? You know, but same goes for wins. You know, after every win, I think back, all right, well, you know, what can I improve on? You know, what are these guys looking out? You know, now I got to start looking at the top 10 guys and they're going to be looking at my past fights, and they're going to make game plans for me, but they're going to be a little too late because I've already had a game plan for myself. If I were to fight Drew Dober, this is what I would do. So now I got to improve and, and fill those holes. Um, so every single fight, every time I'm in the cage, that's an opportunity to get better and grow. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, you called out Felder. I mean, has the UFC indicated any interest in this? Like, uh, what, what, like, what do you think your next move is? And, and, and also when, because this whole situation is kind of weird, right? Oh man, that's hilarious. Everyone was eating it up that I called up Felder, but I was on the mic and there's like, you know, who would you love to fight? And I'm going to be completely honest. I want to fight the best strikers in the lightweight division. And here's this this guy sitting commentary right in front of me. I was like, yeah, like guys like Paul Felder. And then in my mind, it's like Dustin Poirier, Conor McGregor, like (laughs) these guys just like, they put on fantastic shows and I want to be a part of the show. Cowboy Cerrone, like these guys are amazing. And so like, I want to specifically, you know, point my finger at Paul. Like I want to like punch him in the mouth. No, I just want to have fantastic fights in the top five division, uh, in the top five of the best division in the UFC. And Paul Felder was just sitting right across from me. That's hilarious. Uh, hey, let's ask you here while we have you on the uh, the hook for the top of that division. Um, were you surprised Justin Gaethje beat Tony Ferguson, and then surprised the way he did it? Um. No, I'm not surprised he beat Tony Ferguson, but yes, I am surprised in the manner in which he did. Um, you know, uh, Justin and I, like, we're really, you know, we're close friends and we train together all the time. And we told, like, the, the theory was, you know, the first three rounds are going to be Gaethje's, right? Because Tony's, like, he's, you know, a long-term type of fighter. You know, he's durable and stuff that maybe the fourth and fifth round statistically is going to go to Ferguson. But then you watch the fight and Gaethje turned it on in the fourth and fifth in championship rounds and then got the finish in the fifth to the point where like, I text Gaethje. I'm like, how about getting that fifth, uh, that finish in the championship rounds? 
So the manner in which he won was surprising, but the fact that he won, I, I wasn't surprised at all. That's amazing. Now, you, I know you had trained with him during this camp, and you guys have a high opinion of each other. It sounds like you guys have both elevated one another through this process. Give me the case for why, because I'm sure the answer is yes. So rather than asking you, do I think you, do, I, do you believe he can beat Nurmagomedov? Rather, what I'll ask you is, give me the case for why he can. Um, I think uh, the few times that we've seen uh, Khabib kind of struggle, uh, Justin Gaethje is excellent in those those areas. You know, uh, if Khabib has a hard time taking you down, you know, against Al Iaquanta, you know, it kind of puts him in, you know, like an uncomfortable situation where he's really got a sufficient part, right? And then against Dustin Poirier, Dustin Poirier caught him and staggered, you know, Khabib. Right, could be still found a way to take him down and, and win the fight. But if you look at Justin Gaethje, he was a college wrestler and a good college wrestler, and his hands are like bricks. So it's like if you can't take him down, and he has the opportunity to punch you in the mouth at any moment in that fight, he can end it. By the way, were you surprised that Tony lasted as long as he did, taking all of those punches? I mean, in in the end, I was I felt for Tony Ferguson. I was like, wow, this is terrible. I, that that is a legendary chin performance from Tony Ferguson. You you would know firsthand, I'm sure. Oh yeah, yeah. No, Gaethje he, he hits hard. He can accidentally hit you hard. Um, yeah, actually, the, the the cool thing that I saw from Ferguson was not that he was just taking the punches extremely well. He was actually rolling with the punches extremely well. There's a couple times where he got punched and spun, and what that does is it alleviates some of the um, like the concussive hit of that blast. So, like, not only was he taking the punches, but he's also able to, like, keep himself in the fight by rolling away from the punches, which was super impressive. I took note of that. Fair enough. Well, I got to say, we all took note of your performance, Drew. That was a hell of a win, man. It was clinical. Perfect. Maybe not. Pretty goddamn close, though. That was really, really great. Uh, you should be really proud of yourself, and uh, you should enjoy this one. And we hope we, we'll, we know we'll see you again, but we can't wait for that. Thank you so much, Drew. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Anytime, guys. All right, there he is, Drew Dober. Hell of a win by that guy. Relax, let's have some fun out here. This game's fun, okay? This is Mike Farron. If you've missed a minute of sports from the sidelines on MLB Network Radio, catch every episode on demand with the SiriusXM. It's athletes and executives talking to athletes and executives. Hear Trevor May and Twins teammates break down life in the AL Central. Pitmasters Tim Melville and Buck Farmer talking brisket recipes. For All-Stars Patrick Corbin and Whit Merrifield on the 2020 season. Plus much, much more. Don't miss sports from the sidelines. Available now on the SiriusXM app. Search sidelines. You know, until we see how Saturday goes, we can't really grade this three-fight stretch from the UFC. And if you guys didn't hear, they had intended to put on a show May 23rd. That probably won't happen, and it'll probably be May 30th. Now, where May 30th? We're not sure. They had intended to put it in Nevada, uh, but my, my understanding is Nevada has not lifted any of its restrictions yet, so I don't know how likely that is at this point in time. So here is what I here is my assessment of the path ahead. Um, I would say it's bright for UFC, but I'm going to say it with a few caveats, which is number one, the good news for them, and we have this from uh, Moody's, who put out a financial report about the UFC. Fans seem to think that there's no proof of the UFC's numbers, but there's actually plenty. But here's what we found. Uh, attendance revenue in 2019, do you know what percentage of the UFC's overall revenue 
came from live gate attendance. All right? How, mu- how much money, did, not really did they make from ticket sales, but like what part of their business was that? And the answer is 12%. Now, the 12% is not an insignificant amount, but if you have to give that up, that's, a, that's the easiest part to give up. Still hurts. I mean, it hurts. You're losing 12% of your revenue. That's a lot. But that's not catastrophic by any means. That's a bump. That sucks. But you'll, they'll be able to persevere just fine. So you have a few things going for you. One, you're losing out on the gate, but it turns out that's not a big deal. The biggest deal, anyway. Two, you're having these other costs that you're incurring. I think they spent $150,000 on these three event tests. But to me, given what you're able to do as a consequence of it, that's a small price to pay. Three, you have very little competition for now. We'll see how things change over the summer and then the fall. Four, there's just absolute momentum for it because the fighters are profoundly underpaid. They have no union, so they want to compete so they can get paid. The fans do not seem to care in great detail about health and safety procedures. They say they do, but they really don't. Let's just be clear about that. They don't. I'm not saying if you're listening right now and you're a fan that you don't, uh, but the, the amount of pushback that gets raised when folks ask questions and raise objections to potential either liabilities that could develop or people that could be endangered unnecessarily, the amount of pushback about this, and frankly, most of it being scientifically illiterate, indicates to me that like the, 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 the real value to fighters to a lot of fans, and again, this may not apply to you, and if it doesn't, you don't have to worry about it, but for many, they are merely agents of entertainment. Like this claim that what you are profoundly concerned about is their health and safety, I think is it, it, there's just not a lot of evidence to conclude that that is true, at least as it relates to COVID-19, all right? So I want to put, keep that in mind. But here's the point. UFC has this protocol that they put out. They don't even adhere to it necessarily. I mean, they adhere to it in sort of the major parts. There's fairly a, a few minor parts where they don't, and nobody cares. Drug rate test positive. There's lots of reasons to think that there was people who might have been spreading it while they were there. Nobody seems to Nobody cares. Like nobody, The point is nobody cares. So if nobody cares and the fighters want to compete and the organization is out there for it and the media is not really in a position to step in the way to ask basic questions about these, this protocol and they're not losing a ton on the gate and even when there is an incident, it doesn't prove catastrophic and so on and so on, you just get the idea that there's momentum. The issue for me is going to be a different one. All the interest in the world is there. All of the market demand, I think is some, by the way, I, we didn't talk about this. I'll get to it in just a second. The market demand in general is there. The fighter willingness is there. The, the current is at their back. Where it gets complicated is to what extent they're going to be able to vary things up. Right, they're having to make unusual matches, and so at this point, we're just kind of saying, "Well, we're just happy to get fights." I wonder at some point if folks might start saying no because it could have a negative effect on their career, or fans might object to it because if if other pieces of society start returning to normal, do we really have to now accept abnormal fights? Right, like Chito Vera taking on Faber last minute at one fifty-five or something, right? Or no, I think he, yeah, something like that. I think he weighed like one fifty-three or something. So that's where it gets kind of weird. And then the other part is they want to put it on on May 23rd, and then they can't because 
there's just a lot of unknowns about what's going to be open, when things might close down again. Maybe we have a great summer where the coronavirus totally subsides and then it comes roaring back in the winter. So, you know, who the hell knows with all that stuff, right? So that part is kind of weird. But I would say this. In general, you're going to get some version of the UFC, I think, pretty consistently. The only thing that might get weird are the individual matchups, how competitive they are, how unusual they are, how last minute they are. And then they might have events planned for particular dates, and then they have to give those dates up because they just can't make the calendar work in the way that they ordinarily would be able to, right? Um, so that's, that's where I think the issue might come into play. One last note about this. So we had talked about how that number for the UFC 249 pay-per-view was like through the roof, right? Oh my God, it was so high. It was 700,000, which would put it in the company of top 30 pay-per-views all time. And we, we said that that was really curious for a lot of reasons. Remember, pay-per-view is a star-driven business. That means in order for it to work at its best and its peak, what it needs is star power. It needs a star at the top of it to get the maximum amount of draw. Doesn't necessarily mean it can be the best fight or the most competitive fight. It just means that the sales of a pay-per-view are directly correlated to the celebrity of the fighters headlining it. Right? Mayweather McGregor is a pretty clear example of that. Okay? Well, this one didn't have that. It had Gaethje and it had Ferguson. Two very good fighters, elite fighters, two well-liked fighters inside the community, not known pay-per-view commodities. Now, the counter to that is this was the first event back. There was a lot of intrigue about it. Okay, fair enough. But on the other side, here's what we found out about the... Cobb, did you hear about the, uh, the prelim ratings on ESPN? So this was what up to headlined by Pettis and uh, Cowboy. Did you hear what the numbers were? They are very good, from what I remember. No, they were very bad. They? they were less than the prelims for UFC 248, which was not a big card. Remember, they were what's less. A good th- number. What's a good number on free TV? Um, I mean, it did above a million, so in that sense, it's good. Yeah, but here's I thought the, it was a decent number. <laughs> it's a decent number in the sense that um, certainly it was better than, let's say, UFC Brasilia, which objectively was the worst. But here's the point: the number itself. Okay, I said bad. It's not bad. It's fine. But I guess it's bad in this sense. That pay-per-view, we don't have exact numbers on it, but it's believed to have not done all that well, right? Uh, and I have some reason to believe that. Like, we're talking a fraction of what 249 did, and then the lead-in programming for 249 actually did lower ratings than UFC 248, yet the pay-per-view did many multiples during a time when 36 million Americans are out of work. Here's what I'm saying. The Sports Business Journal reported it, and it's not like the old days of pay-per-view where if you had, as a journalist, connections at Comcast, connections at DirecTV, connections at this company, connections at that company, you'd be able to tell and cobble together a number because you would have access to all these different folks. The number now is proprietary in its own... It's always been proprietary, but it's owned by a single entity at this point, ESPN. And so... If Orand got it, that meant someone from there had to give it to him. Did they give him an accurate number? You know, listen, I'm not here to say the guy reports lies because that would not be true. He has his reporting has been exemplary. I'm just telling you they're self-reporting essentially in this case. 
I'm a little bit more skeptical of that 700,000 now than I was before. I'll leave it at that. I don't have enough evidence to conclude that it's wrong. I cannot say that it is. But it, to me, it's a little hard to understand how a pay-per-view before that, when the economy was great, could be a fraction of what it would be when the economy is terrible, when all the numbers leading into it were either identical or less. That's a little weird for me. Just putting that out there. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.